2: Richard, do you remember your original idea for this podcast, Change My Mind? I
1: sure do. We were going to put controversial ideas out there and see if our guests could get us to change our minds about them. But instead, we we wound up focusing about solutions. How do we fix it?
2: Of course, in real life, people don't really change their minds very often. But today, we're going to talk to somebody, an old friend of mine, actually, who has changed his mind dramatically on an issue that affects all of us.
1: Today's episode, Breaking Up the Social Media Giants, with Glenn Harlan Reynolds.
3: Twitter is like the crystal meth of social media. It's addictive and yet ultimately unsatisfying. It seems like society has kind of gotten crazier over the last 10 years, and maybe it really has. Maybe we are, in fact, amplifying craziness through social media. And since you know, most of the decision makers and... It's sort of the nervous system of our society is on social media. Maybe it's affecting them the most.
1: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
2: Richard, we're going back to the well on a topic we've been concerned about since the very start of how do we fix it. What the hell is social media doing to us? Yeah, we've talked about how it affects our
1: brains, how it's driving political polarization, how Google and YouTube algorithms tend to push people towards greater extremes. And now the question is,
2: is it time to do something about it?
1: Our guest is University of Tennessee law professor Glenn Reynolds. Glenn was a guest on How Do We Fix It? way back on episode 10. He's the author of several books and a columnist for USA Today.
2: And he was a pioneer in internet journalism with his blog Instapundit that he started back in 2001. His latest book is about how the internet has changed since those days and not for the better. It's called the Social Media Upheaval. Glenn joins us via Skype from Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome to How Do We Fix It?
3: Thanks for having me. Great to be back.
2: (laughs) Glenn, in a sense, you were present at the creation of the social internet. Many of our listeners might not know about the online world before Facebook. Tell us about this thing called the blogosphere and even some of the platforms that existed before that.
3: Well, I actually go back much further than I go back so far. I was actually a moderator on a Fidonet channel back in the 80s. Before social media, which was really only about 10 years ago, at the turn of the millennium, we had the creation of the blogosphere. And I was one of the earliest, though not quite the earliest bloggers. So I started in August of 2001 and actually pretty fast had like 600 page views a day and thought I was really cruising. Then shortly after that, we had September 11th. And uh, a lot of the big news sites actually went down under the strain. And I was up, and I was posting stuff, and I got linked from uh, the Wall Street Journal and uh, a couple of other places. And my traffic uh, suddenly jumped into, the, like, the 5,000 page view range. And it, within a couple of months, it was at 25,000, and it continued to climb. And now it's probably around 600,000 on a typical day.
1: So tell us a little bit about Instapundit and, and, and why you started it.
3: Well, I had written op-eds for newspapers and stuff for years and i'd follow these other blogs i thought i could do it too my philosophy has always been in a way it's kind of a media criticism blog uh and i warn people not to use me as a news service because a lot of times i'm almost like a mirror image of what's wrong with the media i will emphasize the stuff i think they're ignoring uh and while i'll say that's what i'm doing you you need to be careful it's not the only place you get your news after 9-11 one of the things i did was try to just be calm i was very critical of the um creation of the TSA and the Department of Homeland Security and all the sort of security theory that went on. Yet at the same time, I was also critical of a lot of the so-called peace movement people who seemed less concerned with peace than with simply undermining U.S. efforts. And it was basically just what I thought about stuff that was in the news every day, which is what it is today. So
1: it's not as if blogs have gone away. You have 600,000 followers.
3: Well, this is one of the funny things. You know, Technology comes around and it gets a lot of attention. And then after a few years, you know, the press is talking about the next shiny object and people think that it's gone away, but often there are more people using the old platform after it quits being chic than there were when it was getting the most attention. I mean, I was getting the most attention when I had 25 or 50,000 page views a day. And now I'm sort of, you know, I I get noticed now and then, but my blog's basically part of the background. Now it's been around for going on 20 years and uh, it's not very newsworthy that it exists. Uh, and yet it chugs along and, uh, you know, continues to grow.
2: So how did things change with the arrival of Facebook and
3: Twitter? Uh, mostly for the worst, uh, although not a, not completely. The great thing about the blogosphere as it was operating at its peak, which was, say, between about 2003 and about 2009, it was very independent and very decentralized and very consistent with sort of the original uh, sort of founding vision of The internet as a place for a lot of free speech from a lot of different kinds of people with no central control. And that protected it from a lot of the pathologies that we see on social media. If you put something on your blog, uh, it didn't affect any other blog directly. It only affected it if other bloggers decided to respond to it, either by agreeing or disagreeing or just pointing it out. Uh, And uh, you didn't get opportunities for censorship uh, because you couldn't censor it. There were too many different platforms. There was no easy way to control the message. And because of that, there wasn't much demand for censorship. Now, on social media, it's a very different setup. Social media, Facebook, Twitter is sort of the the most pronounced version of the virtues and vices of social media. But they're all similar. With that, you have a tightly coupled system where people react to what other people do uh, almost instantaneously by liking or sharing or perhaps reporting. <laughs> uh And uh, that spreads like wildfire through the system, which is why we see the creation of these sort of shame mobs that I talk about in the book on social media. Uh, But the structure of the system lends itself to that. It also lends itself to censorship because you can do, as Twitter did this week, uh, you can just take down the Chinese dissidents accounts right before the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. Uh, You couldn't do that with blogs, but you can do that on a social media platform.
1: Talk about... Shame mobs and, and what they are, and also the 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 reactions to them.
3: So shame mobs typically spring up when somebody, sometimes it's when somebody does something in the real world. It's more often when somebody does something on uh, Twitter or Facebook. It's usually Twitter, uh, and somebody else decides to call them out. So a PR executive named Justine Sacco, who I think had something like 170 followers posted a joke. She was going to Africa and she said, you know, I'm going to Africa. hope I don't get AIDS. Oh, never mind. I'm white. And it was a joke about how people are paranoid about AIDS uh, and don't and visiting Africa and don't need to be. Uh, she had a, like 170 followers, but somebody picked it up and decided that it was bad. And it quickly spread virally with people not just saying this is stupid, but actually taking it upon themselves to find out where she worked contact her employers to demand that she be fired, et cetera, et cetera. And there was sort of a gleeful sadism in it, as the hashtag Has Justine Landed Yet, that it was all done under illustrates, because part of the joke was here she is on the plane sipping her cocktail and reading her novel. Little does she know that when she lands in South Africa, her life's going to be ruined, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, what Um, what happened to her? She did lose her job, and uh, there was a story in the New York Times about a uh, number of people who were victims of these shame mobs, Uh, And it said that she was still unemployed at the time that story came out. So net social welfare was not improved by Twitter. It's an outlet for people's worst actions. And in fact, as I say in the book, it's kind of a a weird version of Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery, where a town once a year randomly picks one of its members to be stoned to death by the rest of the town.
2: Right. And you are actually – we're a pretty active Twitter user there for a few years. I certainly followed you. And, um, and then one day you just decided to get off. Um, why? And what has that been like?
3: You know, you get sucked in. It is, in fact, addictive. But as I did the research and thought about it, I was like, you know, Twitter is like the crystal meth of social media. It's addictive and yet ultimately unsatisfying. And uh, you're providing free content to a company that doesn't act like it likes you. And just by being on there, you expose yourself to a much greater risk of being targeted by one of these mobs. Uh, The straw that broke the back was when they banned somebody for no obvious reason. I think it was Jesse Kelly. And I don't even remember what the excuse was. He's still on there now. But I just literally something in me was just like, okay, I've had it. No more of this. And I must say, I have never missed it. My life is so much better. People occasionally, you know, write me. We miss you. We wish you were on Twitter. And I'm like, I don't. So.
1: Social media, by its very design, is social. And you say right now it almost seems as if social media, sites such as Twitter and Facebook, were designed to spread viruses of the mind. What do you mean?
3: Yeah. What actually gave me the idea for the whole book was I was reading uh, James Scott's book, Uh, Against the Grain, which is about the very earliest cities um, as people were emerging from hunting and gathering and into agriculture. And one of the characteristics of those early cities is that they would spring up and flourish for a while, but not a huge time before they would tend to depopulate because of epidemics. And the reason was you were doing something nobody had done before. We're taking all these people and animals and cramming together into closed space without – any effort at sanitation because people knew nothing.
1: So what you're saying is is that when hunter-gatherer societies or nomadic societies, if a particular virus broke out or an illness, um, it it wouldn't spread nearly as quickly as it would in these new cities.
3: That's right. I mean, if, if a tribe gets sick, uh, there's a decent chance that whatever illness they get burns out before there's a chance to even infect another tribe. And if nothing else, it probably takes years to cross the continent in one of these cities on the other hand it could spread in a matter of days or weeks and that got me thinking you know it seems like society has kind of gotten crazier over the last 10 years and maybe it really has maybe we are in fact amplifying craziness through social media and since you know most of the decision makers and reporters and pundits sort of the nervous system of our society is disproportionately on social media, maybe it's affecting them the most.
1: Is that craziness because things spread so
3: fast? I think, yes. I, there's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, Jared Lanier has, has a book on social media, too. One of the things he points out is social media platforms are all designed to promote engagement, which basically means keeping people on the screen and clicking. And they do that through emotions. And the easiest emotions to amplify and exploit are the negative emotions. So they tend disproportionately to amplify uh, anger and fear and hatred and generally negative emotions. That's not always true, of course, but it's disproportionately so. And the systems are, in fact, designed to be addictive. I mean, uh, there's a whole literature on this now, and my favorite part is, one of the companies that consults with platforms and making them uh, addictive has the name Dopamine Labs, which I think really gives the game away.
2: Tell us how these algorithms work and why they can be so insidious, even if nobody in the company that designed them necessarily intended them to have these effects.
3: Well, right. Well, for one thing, nobody knows exactly how they work outside the companies. And it's not 100 percent clear that even the people inside the companies fully understand how they work. Uh, but we know what they're basically designed to do. And what they are designed to do is to keep you excited and passionate and on the screen and to make you feel good when you click on things and you're there and make you feel bad when you leave. Uh, they are you know, absolutely designed to give you the same kind of buzz that gambling or booze does. And uh, in fact, it's, it, there's some of the people in the casino world who do the same kind of work have written some posts where they're just sort of amused that the social media people are stealing all their techniques. Uh, they all curate your feed in order to keep you wound up and agitated. And uh, it's fairly effective.
1: It's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And
3: I'm Jim Meggs. And
1: we're speaking with Glenn Reynolds about his new book called The Social Media Upheaval. And now we're going to turn to solutions. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. So let's talk about solutions. You argue for some action against tech giants, but are skeptical about some others. Let's start with calls to revise Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. First, what is Section 230?
3: So Section 230 was passed back in the 90s, and it was designed to ensure that newspapers and other sites, that's about all there was on the web back then, like that, could, could edit their comment sections without being treated as publishers. The, the worry before was that if you exercise any editorial control uh, over the things that were in your comment sections, that meant that it would be treated as your speech, uh, whatever you left up, and that that would expose you to all kinds of liability for libel or copyright infringement or whatever. I mean, a, a classic example is, say, for example, you write a story about the mayor, and somebody in the comments section says that the mayor is having an affair with the fire chief. Assuming it's not true, that's libelous. The newspaper doesn't want to be on the hook for it. The newspaper is afraid that if they make a habit of deleting stuff like that, but then they miss one, they'll be treated as having approved its publication and be on the hook. So the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, Safe Harbor, says, we're not liable for any content on your site that comes from somewhere else, essentially, or somebody else. So that's fine, and and, and that did what it was meant to do. What it has the effect of doing for sites like Twitter or Facebook is they are built entirely on someone else's content. They publish nothing of their own speech, really. It's all other people's stuff, and they are immune from libel. They're immune from copyright infringement. They are protected from all kinds of things. So there is an argument that people make for ending Section 230 protection. Uh, That would effectively put most social media platforms out of business, certainly Twitter and Facebook. But... I think it's unlikely to go anywhere. I think, first of all, it's not actually clear that it's a good idea, and it's also uh, going to be opposed by all very powerful forces. So I think it's going to be very hard to, to accomplish.
2: Another thing that comes up a lot, and people who propose it usually think this is would be fairly straightforward, is you set up some kind of panel or overview group, not necessarily linked to the government, that would... Go through stuff that is spreading on social media and figure out what's legitimate, what's accurate versus what's fake news. What do you think about these kinds of approaches?
3: Um, I don't believe in them because I don't trust them. The public, generally speaking, doesn't particularly trust them. Uh, I think that's that's a problem with our society in general. We've had a major breakdown of trust in institutions, and one of the reasons we've had that breakdown of trust is because we discovered that institutions – aren't as trustworthy as we used to think. So I don't think creating new institutions that we're just supposed to trust is going to solve the problem.
1: What about the case for greater transparency involving algorithms and how they're put together?
3: See, I think that would be very useful. Um, Right now, you're being shown stuff and you don't know why. Uh, And it is affecting you in ways that could actually be pretty subtle and sophisticated and troubling. I mean, Facebook experimented with manipulating the uh, emotional state of its audience and also with doing things to affect their willingness to show up and vote. They published papers on this. They weren't ashamed of it, uh, though in retrospect, maybe they should have been. My proposal is that, number one, uh, they publish these algorithms. They make them available to people so that uh, scholars and regulators and competitors and the more sophisticated members of the public can see what they're doing. And second, that they have a vanilla option required. Like if you're on Facebook right now, you can pick most recent or top stories. But even when you pick most recent, it doesn't actually give you what Facebook used to give you in its infancy, which was just what your friends posted in the order that they posted it with no fiddling at all. That's what I want. And that is not subject to manipulation in the same way.
1: Yeah, on an earlier episode of, of How Do We Fix It? we spoke with media analyst and scholar Zeynep Tufekci who talked about how algorithms zero in on negative emotions and amplify them. And one example, which I thought was really alarming, is that, for instance, if you go on YouTube and you're kind of interested in maybe looking at a couple of vegetarian sites that urge you to to not eat meat, what YouTube tends to do is you start off with something that's fairly innocuous and probably well-argued, and then it starts pushing you into more extreme forms of video in order to keep you on the site.
3: Yes, and they all work that way, more or less.
2: One of the proposals that you address seriously is a fairly drastic one. It's to use the government's power in antitrust law to break up these uh, big tech companies, kind of the way the big big trusts were broken up uh, or curtailed. around the turn of the last century. Tell us how antitrust law would work here.
3: Well, you could potentially actually split Facebook uh, into pieces, though that would be difficult. Under antitrust law, you'd have to show that they'd done something uh, illegal to achieve their big market share, which might be the case, but I don't have any particular reason to think that it is. Uh, However, what Facebook and, and Google and other big tech companies have done is bought up competitors they bought up a whole bunch of them and they have as a result reduced competition substantially and they also have a fairly clear track record of colluding with one another to put down uh new competitors that threaten one of them so for example you have a twitter competitor uh, called gab that paypal refused to process payments for and you have a youtube competitor called bit that paypal also refused to process payments for and google search algorithms tend to um tend to favor uh, existing players at the expense of outsiders and so on. So one of the things you want to stop that sort of collusion, uh, which is a, a major function of antitrust law. Also, they probably could be forced to spin off a lot of things. I mean, Facebook also owns Instagram. And it made me laugh when I saw people a while back, a lot of people were quitting Facebook because they were mad about something. I'm going to Instagram instead. You know? <laughs> That's like, I know like, a few people
1: know, who did that.
3: It's like I'm boycotting Ford. From now on, I only drive a Lincoln. You know, I'll teach him. <laughs> Uh, A guy who's actually something of a friend of mine, Tim Wu, who's a professor at Columbia, recently did a book on exactly this tech antitrust issue called The Curse of Bigness. And he points out how many acquisitions Facebook and Amazon and Google made without any antitrust challenge at all. It's 67 for Facebook, 91 for Amazon, and 214 for Google. Uh, So it's kind of like
1: the federal government's been asleep at the switch.
3: Yeah, He says the tech industry became essentially composed of just a few giant trusts, Google for search and related industries, Facebook for social media, Amazon for online commerce. And indeed, Google and Facebook have a stranglehold on uh, internet advertising, which is just amazing.
1: The Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes got a huge amount of publicity for an op-ed that he wrote that seemed to appear in almost every media organ uh, during the week that he wrote it. He said that Facebook should be broken up and regulated. Do you agree?
3: Um, possibly. Regulated for sure. Broken up. Certainly divested from its non-Facebook holdings.
1: Um, you talk about social media dysfunction as a kind of virus or an epidemic that that affects our behavior. So could we treat this more like a public health problem and, and build people's immunity to some of the worst things that are going on?
3: Yes, I talk about exactly that. I mean, one of the interesting things about cities, of course, is we did eventually manage to build cities without everybody in them getting sick and dying. But we learned, even though we didn't understand the germ theory of disease, we learned sort of rule of thumb sanitation. And one of the greatest things that protects people from getting sick and dying is being healthy and well-nourished. And, uh, you know, better fed populations do much better under diseases. So by analogy, what I would suggest is that we form some customs and habits of mental sanitation to include such things as disconnecting on a regular basis, and also that we encourage people to be knowledgeable and engage in critical thinking. Uh, and if we do that, that kind of mental nutrition will build up people's defenses a lot.
2: So, Glenn, I've always thought of you as a really optimistic, sunny kind of thinker, and um, you've been labeled a techno-optimist. It's a phrase I've always liked. This book is pretty downbeat. Uh where would you put your outlook now looking forward on you know what do you think is the the likelihood that we're going to get a handle on this problem and that everything will be just fine or do you see more trouble ahead?
3: Well, I think actually the answer is probably both. Uh I think your new technologies are often disruptive uh and they're not all equally great. I think that we will adjust to this. I predict that Social media will sort of go out of style and while it won't really go away, it will be less influential. Uh, And as it becomes less influential, it will be less damaging and that will be fine. Uh, One of the things I actually recommend for organizations is to pay less attention to it. You know, just because there's a mob of people on Twitter demanding that you fire some employee doesn't mean that you actually have to. Uh, Those people are on there for the thrill of being part of a mob and throwing virtual stones at the lottery loser. They're not actually going to quit buying stuff from your company. They're very unlikely to take any real action in the real world. And they're unlikely even to really remember what this was about in a week or two. So the best thing a lot of times you can do in the face of these is just ignore it. And I point out in the book, the problem is every big organization now has a social media person. And that social media person is the last person in the world who will tell you not to pay attention to social media. Right. Uh, That person person
1: wants to protect their job.
3: (laughs) Right. And yet that's actually often the best thing to do. Glenn Reynolds,
1: thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It?
3: Thanks for having me.
2: So this one's a lot of fun for me. Uh, Glenn and I go way back. He was one of the first writers that I hired to write a column at Popular Mechanics when I started there in in 2004. He's always been a very independent thinker, kind of a libertarian bent. And I find that almost on any issue, if the whole world is going one way, he'll be the one standing up and saying, wait a minute, what about this other perspective? And I find that really useful.
1: Yeah, I've been surprised by reading him because sometimes I'll go, oh no, that's way too right wing. And then and then his next blog or his next post will be promoting something that's usually associated with progressives.
2: Right, and I think on this issue I'm really with them on the general sense that he's very reluctant. We didn't dig into it too deeply, but he's he's really cautions against any kind of fake news. Regulation or control?
1: Because who would be the regulators, and, right?
2: And, and and what you see one classic thing in, in in libertarian economics is anytime you regulate an industry, guess what? The people who survive the regulation, thrive under it, are the people who are already the established players. So regulation would only help Facebook, Twitter, Google, Amazon enhance their power by keeping out competitors
1: but he is more sympathetic about the idea of antitrust of potentially breaking up some of these giants
2: yeah and i've always been dubious about that kind of approach but i think he's got a real point here and i think we should study it
1: One thing that I don't agree with him on, and it's interesting because you're not on Facebook but are on Twitter, is that Twitter is necessarily destructive. I find that Twitter has actually helped increase the number of sources of of news for me. Yeah, me
2: too. I love Twitter. We're not famous in the way that Glenn, with all of his political opinions and whatnot, is a real lightning rod for criticism. We're not like that. So we're able to follow a lot of people, and we're not getting 50 people jump. Being on us for every comment we make.
1: So you're saying that if "How do we fix it" turned into this internet sensation, well, we're on our
2: way. It's getting there. (laughs) That that maybe you and I would have
1: to get off Twitter.
2: (laughs) It's possible that you know. Be be careful what you wish for. I guess.
1: It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs, and our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And our music is by Luce Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check out what we could do for you. At daviescontent.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility
2: with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable.